You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett, and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we explore leadership through the lens of high-performance sport by interviewing great coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Peter Giles. Peter is currently the Australian Under-19 Baseball Head Coach, a role he has had since 2011. He started playing baseball in 1969, finished in 1994 and began coaching in 1995. He won a championship in 1998 with Sandringham and then led Essendon in the Victorian State League to six successive championships from 2011 to 2018. He has also coached the Australian Under-17 Baseball team and in 2015 was voted Baseball Victoria Coach of the Year. In 2020, he launched the Academy of Baseball Excellence that he now heads up. Peter is a coach with a heightened focus on leading his club, not just the team of players who suit up each week. He is comfortable in his leadership philosophy in the way that only coaches with a long history of success and failure can be, 
and believes that his role is to be as fair as possible to everyone. His background in teaching enables him to communicate in a way that engenders both belief and motivation, and this translates into a mantra of asking his players to know their role and do it to the best of their ability, which you will actually hear him also say in the opening theme for this podcast. This discussion with Peter is a masterclass in the art of coaching. It was actually one of the first interviews we did when we started this podcast, and his ideas have shaped many of the questions we have gone on to ask other great coaches. Some of Peter's ideas that resonated with me were the importance of not being afraid of bringing in support staff who are more knowledgeable or better than you in certain areas. His advice on building culture by firstly having shared belief across the coaching group in the game plan, then ensuring that every member of the team, either playing or in a supporting role, feels valued, and then thirdly, connecting the team's mission to something bigger than the present team or season. Where culture is driven by the coach, it is not sustainable. Instead, it must be led by the senior group of players in the team, and the example he gives of the All Blacks and the Richmond Football Club to illustrate this. And his view that the role of the coach is to ensure that the players have a good work-life balance so that they don't burn out or have their motivation diminished. I'm very excited to share this interview with you today, and I hope you get as much out of it as Jim and I did. The Great Coaches Podcast. Good morning, Peter Giles, and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. How are you today? Very good. Thank you, Paul. Welcome and good to speak. Great to speak to you too. Where are you today? So now in Melbourne, in a little suburb just out of Melbourne, Armadale, just Friday afternoon. So it's the end of another week. Well, fantastic. We're very much looking forward to chatting with you. I'm a big baseball fan and I'm looking forward to hearing your philosophies on coaching baseball. I'd like to start actually with as we were preparing for today, you sent me a wonderful quote and I'd like you to explain a little bit about what it means to you. You said, players don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yeah, exactly. It's one of those things, Paul, that's probably taken me a while to actually believe in that. All the way through my playing career, and and you look at in various sports over the years in documentaries, that used to be coaching was the fire and brimstone and the ridicule and the really much the dictatorship style of coaching. And I think maybe just whether it's being part of being a phys ed teacher and seeing kids every day, at the end of the day, the people that relate to you the best are the ones that feel as though you have a vested interest in them. Well, it's not so much having a vested interest in their, for me, a baseball ability, but seeing them off-field since as we get adults into their family life from single people into married people into parents. When players and families think that a coach has the best interest in them, and my experience has been to get the best rewards from that player. And I've heard that saying from various coaches, but now I really believe that you could be the most respected player that has ever walked the earth in your sport, but that doesn't give you the right to be a good coach. And I think it's when players really believe that you have a vested interest in their well-being and their just general belief as a person, then the success that you get is magnified. So you've seen, as you just mentioned then, you've seen players or people you've coached, and I know you've coached juniors and I know you've coached men, you've seen them transition through their life. So I guess I'd like to ask you, what is the role of a coach? When I started coaching, it was you've got to commit four, five, six days a week, multiple hours in every training session. 
because I thought coaching was all about get as much work into the players as you can. But as I've got older and worked with a whole variety of levels of players, is basically ensuring that they've got a good work-life balance. And if they're players that I've found that were too much into baseball, I found they got burnt out. And I found that as soon as failure happened to them, and these are the elite kids who were the, the elite of under 18 and under 19 in Australia, they were the top of the gene pool here. And they would be training every day, four or five hours a day, believing that's what they had to do. As soon as they got to America and found out that success was not a guaranteed thing because you were good in Australia, doesn't mean you're going to be good in America. I found those players finished up getting so despondent because they never had that escape of how can I just regroup and come back again. These were the elite kids that got burnt out. So I just believe now the role of a coach is number one for me is to make sure they've got the good work-life balance because when they do come to training, they're able to maximise the time that they've got. And I found the improvements was phenomenal as opposed to they're there for three or four hours at a time. They may be working for 40 minutes of that three hours. And that was just more than to ensure that they actually believe in themselves. For me, Paul, regardless of the sport, If you have a player that actually believes in themselves because they've got that belief installed from the coaches, then success really becomes really just a domino effect. Role of a coach, mentor slash teacher slash confidant slash a life coach in many ways. All the good coaches in sports, not just baseball, for all sports, people have treated them as a, a semi when they retire, a father figure that taught them more about life than what it was about sport. They're the people I get inspiration from. When I was preparing for this interview, Peter, I was talking to someone about you and they used the word father figure. So it's interesting that you bring it up. But what I'd like to ask you is a lot of people who coach teams really struggle to get this message across around work-life balance and tempering your intensity. Is there any tips or anything that you've done that's really worked to encourage people to find that balance? I'd have to say that if everyone buys into what you're doing, my last stint was with a little local society called Essendon, and they had quite a bit of success. And they turned players, probably three or four players were turned over every year to try to recreate that enthusiasm and that desire was always the dilemma at the start of the year. If players buy into what you're trying to create, you never judge a side by success because that can be false. People can buy a premiership in any sport. Premier League soccer, if you've got the most money, you generally would be successful. I look at, when I try to do research on, and I use international sports, what was it that Leicester Football Club in the Premier League, why did they have that phenomenal year where they had virtually a team of nobodies, but yet were phenomenal? What is it about the no-name teams that were successful? I tried to delve into those teams and coaches as much as I could, and they all had that mantra of the culture, the environment that was created in all of those teams. Players talked about for many years post their time at that club. So I tried to create an environment where everyone, whether you were the elite player or whether you were a first-year player at the club, you felt as though you were just as much respected as each other. I never try to segregate players too much because then that creates divisions. Everyone pays the same enrolment fee or registration fees, so why shouldn't they get the same access to 
as much benefits as the first getters, what the lower grade should get. And then it became a real domino effect, Paul, that people wanted to go to the club to train. People wanted to be part of it. And people were all pretty much then said to, our mantra for that whole time I was there was one ninth. Now, in baseball terms, as you probably know from you, you would know, but with nine players on the team, our mantra for the whole six years I was there was you had to do one ninth. And this is not the person that had to get five hits a game or had to throw a perfect game as a pitcher. You just had to do one ninth. And that whole mantra came from we had players who would come back from the major leagues, a player called Shane Lindsay. He would drive an hour and 20 minutes to a midweek game and said, Pete, what do you want me to do? When players like that bought into it, then you knew that the whole club was on the right track. Players who were playing National League for the Melbourne Aces would come back and they would just say, Pete, what do you want me to do today? And that was the whole mantra. And if you had the senior group buying into that, it was just a really fun place to be because everyone was on the same page. No more, no less. As they say, you know, I try to take a lot from other coaches. Bill Belichick from the New England Patriots. I've looked at his documentary so much and his mantra was just do your job. Know your role and do it to the best of your ability. Very simple terminology, but players knew what their role is. And if you know that, that's just transferable to any sport and any ability level. Just know your role and do it to the best of your ability. I think it's true for all sports and I think it's true for life, actually. But I'm going to ask you about culture in a minute. But firstly, I'd like to ask you about just your experience. You've played in championship teams. You've coached the national level with the Aces in a championship team. And you now coach the national team. So I'd like to ask you, what do great coaches do differently? The really good ones, I mean, I've never met the elite, but I sort of look at what they do and I read a lot of what they do. What they do is they get this core group of senior players. You've got to have a senior group that drives everything. If everything is driven by one player being the coach, then it's not a sustainable product. I try to get the senior core of players and they drive everything you do. The elite team, so when I was very fortunate to be an assistant coach under two great coaches in David White and Dan McConnon, and this was when the Claxton Shield was a two-week tournament um, played for each state, and Dave White was the head coach, and his philosophy was for that two weeks, I'll pick the best team that is playing in Victoria at the moment regardless of reputation or what they had done a year before or two years before. And I remember that he picked the team that one of the games he had a Division Two starting lineup because those players for those teams were the best going around. And that senior core of players, and these are names that may be familiar to some of the players, but Matthew Kent and Russell Spear and Brad Harmon, these players were just fantastic role models to the rest of the team. And we didn't start off with a great tournament, but none of those senior players lost any faith in what we were trying to do. And as the tournament wears on, obviously momentum kicks in and the senior players then just drove the whole culture. And this culture was for a two-week window. We were blessed to win it. My memories is not of the trophy, but it's just of the whole feeling of what it was like to be around 20 players that were selfless, that were all geared towards one thing. What do successful coaches or teams have? They just have that senior core of players that lead everything. And I've told this to many young players coming through that Richmond Football Club, obviously in Melbourne, 
which is now regarded as the benchmark. Six years ago, they were on the cusp of having a massive clean out with the media ridiculing their leadership group. The players in Australia would know called Trent Conchin and his leadership style. To their credit now, and I looked at a documentary by Trent and he modelled itself on the All Blacks and there was no dickhead policy. So no one leaves a, a Richmond club room at the end of the game until it's spotless. They don't delegate that to the cleaners. They delegate it to the playing group. And it's just that club was turned around, not so much because of one person, but because of their leadership group. Everything's transferable. There's no surprise that successful teams in all sports, they all have that common theme of, wow, that group just had a group of leaders that were just phenomenal. And you could look at any sport, and I'm sure that you could say that was all driven by a senior core of players. And everyone follows. It's the Pied Pipers of this world. I want to drill into this idea then of this core group of players because I think what's really interesting in your story is that you coach teams that have won, won multiple titles in multiple years, six in a row with the state team you coach, Essendon. How did you go about resetting after success so that players didn't move forward with a sense of entitlement? I was living in Dubai at the time where Essendon, who were a very, very powerful team, I think had lost all maybe three, either two or three grand finals to an, another powerful team called Waverley. And they just had that mental hurdle of, we can't beat Waverley. And it's a fine line between being just the dominant club for 15 years versus the dominant side for six. So I was lucky enough, I, I was appointed coach. And the first thing I said was, when they were just couldn't get over that grand final hurdle was, we got to come up with a plan B that, Regardless of the sport, my goal is we will play from the very first game of the year as though it's the last game of the season. Whether that's a grand final in football, whether that's game seven of a World Series in baseball, you have to have a game style that stacks up against the very best of the competition. So we altered our game style, regardless of who we were playing, to, to say this is the style that we will play in the very last game of the year. So in baseball terms, Paul, Essendon were known as a very much a free-swinging team that would have the potent to score runs at will. But when they got to the last game of the year, they were facing the best pitch in the competition and those that offence was no longer there for it. I just said was, we will now play a college style of baseball, which is, in baseball terms, manufacture runs. So everyone now knew that their role, as I said to you, one-ninth, know your role, was to make sure that when you were playing and when you were batting, that runner who's on a base must move 90 foot. So everyone would buy into move them 90 foot. So we had logos printed, 90 foot baseball, one nine. So it was the culture of the club that regardless of people, we had three or four players every week would play for the aces. So three or four would come in. They would just know one ninth. You know, that's what I've got to do. Move a runner one ninth. The coaching staff being Richard King and myself, we stopped imports. We never brought any imports out. And we said, you have to virtually play junior baseball to play in our seniors. Everyone knew there was no more roadblocks. There was a vacancy if you played well. You were picked on the, the fact that if you could produce one ninth, then you could, there would be a place for you. 
And all of a sudden, the team was made up of only locals. And we were probably one of the few teams in the league that was made up of locals. And then once you unleash the beast and they had a belief that they could win, then it became just a domino effect. No more imports were there. Local kids all playing the style of baseball that was contributing. Everyone couldn't believe that their averages went down, but the number of runs scored went through the roof. The thing is, Paul, is that people look back and think, but that's so simple, Pete. You didn't have to recreate the wheel, but it was just basically making kids and players believe that they've only got to do one ninth at any given time, whether that's in the field, in the batter's box. If I just did my one ninth, very rarely did that fail under pressure. In the end, Paul, we just finished up on a steamroll and we provided probably the most players per week to the Aces. So we knew that we never had our full side in. But everyone who came through played a role. And then when the season came to the pointy end and the Aces had left and finished, everyone then came back and it was just phenomenal. Three of the grand finals, they won in extra innings and all stood up under pressure purely because they didn't have to do anything different to what they'd been doing the last 27 games. And that's what I laugh when people say you can just turn it on or turn it off. You can't. You've got to believe that it's just consistency. And if you've done it for 27 games, it's very easy to do it in the 28th game than it is to do it for the very first time. And that's how it came about. Just a one-night mantra, 90 foot. It was just the logo of the club is 90 foot. Hi, everyone. I'm here with Professor Eric Knight, the Executive Dean of the Macquarie Business School, and he's just stepped out of the classroom. So, Eric, what kind of leadership skills do you help people develop here at the business school? I think the measure of a great team is whether a team is having the kinds of conversations they need to have in the organisation. And so when we try to develop the leaders of those teams, we want them not only to know how to identify the issues that the team needs to talk about, but also how to have the conversation so that people feel comfortable and focused on the key issues that matter. Thanks, Eric. The master's programs at the Macquarie Business School, designed to empower you challenge you and transform the way you think. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. It's a great story, Peter. And there's so much there around culture, but... What I'd like to do is just a lot of coaches take over new teams and they are trying to improve a culture like you just talked about then. What advice would you have on the things that they should do first? The first thing is that as a coaching group, you've got to really believe in what you're doing because there's going to be people who are going to question you and no doubt that's everyone's got their right. There's going to be times when it doesn't come off. But if you really believe in what you're doing, then I think that's the first step. Next thing is you've got to have communication with everyone. You've got to explain why you're doing things. 
why are you doing the way we're doing it? What is it that we're changing and why are we changing it? I think the days have gone past of it's my way or the highway is gone. I think people are pretty savvy now. They're all very knowledgeable about their sport. And I think you have to justify the direction you're trying to take. It's not going to be a quick fix. To go from a power hitting team into a bunting team takes a lot of courage to do by the players. But you have to try to sell it and, and explain why you're doing it. As long as you're prepared, Paul, as a coach, to find out what the weaknesses are in a culture and rectify one at a time. If you come in and try to change the whole world, that's not going to work. So for Essendon, we try to rectify one thing, and that was to make sure wives and girlfriends were a part of the team. So any function, they had to be a wife and girlfriend rather than the boys are out on the town tonight. That was the first part. The culture went from it's a baseball team made up of boys or men versus it's a baseball club made up of families, wives and girlfriends. That was the first thing that we wanted to fix. The next culture thing we wanted to fix was to ensure that everyone felt as though they were valued. It wasn't just the player who was the superstar. It was the player that you need for a club to survive. Once we fixed that, then all of a sudden it became very easy to fix the on-field culture style of play because everyone felt as though they were part it's funny because we always sign off on emails, Paul, or letters with either EBC Love or EBC Family. And unfortunately, they had some tragedies with Chris Lane, who was that very sad story of the baseball in America, who was shot going for a run in Oklahoma quite a few years ago. He was a young kid over on baseball on a scholarship, and he had a tragic, you know, he was unfortunately shot. And the whole mantra of if it wasn't for a sporting club, that people could feel as though they could go to and feel part of a family. I think that catastrophe and the tragedy would have been magnified for so many people. And I think that's the value of having a sporting club that feels as though you're more than just results on a field. It's more about people feel as though they're part of something much bigger than just being a player from between two o'clock and five o'clock on a Sunday. And all the good teams in the world, in any sport, they feel as though they're part of something. They're part of a family or they're part of a tradition. I love the things that many college teams do where they tap a sign before they leave their locker room. There's, there's that culture and feeling of history, and I love all of that. Because when you put on a Guernsey, we have a sign as they leave the dugout in Essendon. Today, you have the honour of representing Essendon Baseball Club. So it just creates that sense of it feels special to play rather than it's a chore to play. That's, that's where we just gradually changed it and it just snowballed. It's great listening to you talk about family and the role that sport can play in building those bonds. But like all families, there's often times where they disagree or there's issues. And I'd like to just dig in there and ask you about how you've managed to influence disruptive peer pressure or negativity within a team. Well, it's funny because there's two types of families I've found. There's the family that's within a club that is generally all embracing, but then the families that sometimes are associated with representative teams become why isn't or why is, why is player A playing and not player B playing? 
Why is it not that my son was playing? So I find that that is magnified the further up the food chain you go. I've been fortunate enough the last 10 years to be coach of the Australian under 19 schoolboy team. So we travel every two years to America on a 30 game tour against all colleges. First off, I say any player that wants to go anywhere in sport, and I use their life as an example after that, they have to be able to speak for themselves. I tell parents and players in the room at the very first session that I want parents to be part of the journey. Anytime I speak to the playing group, I bring the parents with us so they hear firsthand good and bad things to the team. But I say that any communication must come from the player first. It's not because I'm segregating parents, but I want them now to take ownership that whether it's playing and trying to get into college, whether it's trying to solve a life problem, you have to now start to stand on your own two feet. We make that very clear from the start. So touch wood, I've been blessed that for 10 years, the parents have been, may not agree, but they respect that the player has to be the one to say, Pete, why aren't I doing this? Or Pete, tell me why this happened to me in this scenario, rather than the parent who's living that through their kid, because often that becomes foggy glasses. And it's never perfect, Paul. I mean, there's unfortunately, there's always cases where hindsight, I wish I had it done things differently. But the only thing that grey hair gives you is that it's a, a chance to sort of say, you know what, the last time this scenario happened, I didn't handle it well. This time round, this is how I'm going to handle it. I try to tell people that this is what I'm doing and this is the reason why I'm doing it. Now, if you don't like it, unfortunately, there's two options for you as a player. We either change the way you feel about it and you buy in or there's other clubs that will be better for you. You have to be brutal, Paul, because unfortunately I have to make sure that I'm making it fair for 20 players in a representative team than the one isolated case who sees it differently. But touch wood in the Australian schoolboys who are all trying to get to college and parents travel with us, it's been phenomenal. So I haven't really seen that the angry parents I saw it more in football when I was involved with footy with my son because that's a more of an emotional game. Reality is, Paul, parents, they love their kids and they want to see their kids do well. And I think with kids' sport, if you're honest with people and you're upfront with them, tell them good news, tell them bad news. But if you're upfront, people can generally handle it. And that's been the way that probably grey hair has taught me that not everyone's going to like you. I say it's not my role to be your friend, but it's my role to make sure that I am fair to everyone. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about finding the line between players and coach. But before I get there, I'd, I'd like to ask you a question about self-doubt because you come across as a coach that isn't afraid of holding the line and saying, that's the line and we're all going to stay true to it. But there must be times where you doubt yourself. And I'd be really keen to hear on how you've managed to deal with self-doubt along the journey. There's been a lot of times when I've had senior players that have played for our country and players that have played in National League have come back and said, Pete, I don't agree with what you're doing. I don't think that this is the way to go. There's always, behind closed doors, you will always question yourself. I take a lot of knowledge in people and listening to their stories. I know that in a lot of the AFL coaches, they always have a mentor. That's, all the good coaches seem to have a mentor that they bounce ideas off. Tell me, is it, am, am I wrong in what am I doing? People that don't have a vested interest. I've been blessed that I always 
bounce ideas off people and run it past people. What do you think? And if you've got good mentors, mentors come in all shapes and forms that they're not afraid to tell you the truth. There are times when that has happened to me, but I will always come back and say that this is the way that this club has asked me to take the direction to. Because in order to be appointed, you have to sell a vision to people who make the appointment. I said to the players who were disgruntled, whether you believe it or not, or whether you take credence or not, this is the direction that the club has employed me to do. I want you to be part of it. The club needs you to be part of it. But if you can't buy in, then unfortunately, I can't use you. And I've had players leave the club because of that. But I've also had those same players come back and have been the, the greatest role models, second post coming back, that I could ever have wished. And it's often people will try to test you as a coach. There's always the mantra I find, Paul, that unless you have played at the elite, elite level, then people don't think that you've got the ability to coach. And I think that can go to any sport. But it's incredible that the people in a lot of sports that are successful aren't necessarily or weren't necessarily the best players of that chosen sport, but they generally have been the best communicators and the best people to evoke an ambition or a dream of the club. Yes, you do doubt yourself, but I also believe that you've got to stand firm as that life is never going to be always what you want it to be. And we had a case where in baseball, there is a promotion and relegation system like in English soccer. And Essendon had come off five back-to-back premierships. And in their sixth year, we, for many reasons, we were at the lower half of the ladder. And when you're at the lower half of the ladder with no imports, the knives come out pretty quickly, the, the doubters come out. And that was probably, of all the times I was coaching, was the one that I was the most proud of because they finished up through to what we knew got us those previous five premierships. And then the second part of the year, we finished up turning it around and finished up winning it in game three of a grand final series, unfortunately against your beloved Melbourne side. You have to adapt. You have to change according to the scenario. And we changed to a degree, but the whole culture didn't change. The way we went about this one-nine philosophy did. But the thing that I really found comforting, Paul, and it and happens to, I guess, in business as well, If you've got people who are above you that will support you regardless of results, then eventually the work that you do will pay off. You know, I think as soon as everyone starts second-guessing and backstabbing and trying to think that you're not the person for it, I think that then that creates divisiveness within groups or businesses. But the president of our club was really supportive. They never wavered in their belief. And I think eventually, once it turned around, it became very quickly a very successful group again. In everything, Paul, it was driven by senior players who never questioned that if we keep working hard, it will turn around. And when we had that work-life balance, the work-life balance for the group was now it's time to put the baseball side of work-life ahead of other issues. So they worked harder to get back on track And then once it got back on track, they sort of then had that balance again. But I was blessed with that. When players needed to really work, they worked. Peter, you've got, listening to you, it sounds like you've got a strong relationship with the players, very intimate bond. And again, I think it comes back to this positioning of of you as this father figure for players. But oftentimes you can get too close to players and you need to be removed enough to be dispassionate as the coach. How have you found maintaining that line 
through your career? And is there any advice you could give to other coaches on being able to be dispassionate? Paul, that's the toughest one. When you've been with players for five years and you've been with them three, four days a week and had success, and then you have to tell them that they're not playing grand final, that's tough. There are times when you, your family life says, knows you're going through a tough time because you become irritable away from everyone and you know that decision's impacting them. It's hard not to put yourself in their shoes. I wish I could say that it's fun, but coaching's not always fun because there are always in every team that is successful and in baseball there's 10 players can take the field, there will be 15 that deserve to be there. But unfortunately, you're there to do a job. You're there to ensure that 10 years from now, you have to say you were, we were all part of something. And I think that the players that you have to deliver the devastating news to, I wish I could say there's a rule book to how to do it. I think the rule book changes as you get older, Paul. And I think the rule book for me to, dev- to sit down and deliver devastating news is to be just as honest as you can. Because life has taught me that human nature can deal with the most devastating of news, whether it's from a doctor, whether it's from the police force, you can deal with that when it's told to you. When it's told in drips and drabs and insinuendos, that's when the message is not delivered clearly. I think you can only be upfront now with players. And I think whether that's in business or in sport, I think you've just got to be upfront. There is no easy way when you tell someone that they're not part of something special, but you're making that decision on behalf of 20 players. You're not making it on behalf of one. It's a terrible thing to go through as a coach, but if you put your hand up the coach pool, you put it up for the good and the bad. You know that there will be times when you have to say no to the player that you have loved the most as a coach. But unfortunately, whether that's telling them that they're to retire, whether that's telling them that you're sorry, you've got to come out of the game now, whether that's saying you're unfortunately you're not starting the game, you have to say, well, you know, that comes with the territory. One thing that tells me, Paul, is that if you don't have a vested interest in one person, but you have a vested interest in the club, then you're making the decision, good and bad, on behalf of the club. Players may not agree with you on that given time, but I think at the end of the day, people will always sit back and say, no, I wasn't an individual starting player, but I was part of the success. And that's what I try to make decisions on those gut-wrenching times when I've had to sit players that have come back from a National League Championship game and tell him that I didn't think he was good enough for our starting nine I've had to tell pro players that I'm sorry that, in my opinion, as a coach, you're not in our starting lineup, And that, as you could imagine, doesn't sit well with the baseball community. But it's funny that the players that then are given the honour of starting, the sense of pride that says, well, he's actually believing in me, that for this given day, he thinks I'm in our best nine. It's phenomenal what that creates. When it comes back to culture, if the culture has been driven for years that devastation can be handled by players come get around those that are devastated if you don't have a culture then it becomes an us versus them mentality of you see players and i look a lot in english soccer players that aren't starting will sit on a bench and they seem so disinterested in the game in front of them whereas if the culture is on one of 20 
then they are itching to get into a game. And that's where I found that over the course of the journey, when I have to tell a devastating news, my only advice is I say it to people with the whole team there because it's not an individual decision. It's an individual outcome from a player, but I always will try to make it with a group there because that decision is made with that whole group in mind. So therefore then that the joy and pain is shared by 20 people in the case of a baseball roster for finals rather than an isolated, sorry, you're not playing and you are now an isolated individual. So that would be my only advice, Paul, that I've now I have to make those tough, tough decisions. I do it as a collective group. Unfortunately, it's an impact decision for 20 players and not just one. Peter, I'd like to ask you, you come across as being very principled and you talk about the grey hair giving experience, but you also come across as a great learner, someone who's always interested in, in learning and developing themselves. Is there any, or are there any particular resources, books, courses, websites that you found helpful as a coach? That's funny, Paul. I mean, the lockdown here has, has made you probably, probably use the internet more than I ever would. So I love documentaries. And the last one I watched was on the Australian cricket team. It was called The Test. And obviously you may have seen it. And it's funny because certain lines, in whether it be movies or documentaries, stay so true in my mind. And there was a line by Dustin Langer in that documentary. He said, and I can't remember who he was talking to, he said, I never went to Harvard at all, but I certainly surround myself with people that did. So what I use for that is, I know that I'm not good in many areas. If I can surround myself with people that are good in those areas, then that's what, to me, is what the art of coaching is. I just find, Paul, the biggest website or tool is probably the people that beside you or that you know. It's the coaches that I find that believe that they must do it all have the least success, whether it's the business owner or whether it's the coach that surrounds himself with people that are far superior in their, in their field, then that's what creates a good coach. It's funny, you look at all sports now, dilute their coaches, their actual coach to various people and they trust people to impart their knowledge that then that all comes under the umbrella of the head coach. Paul, is there a website or is there a tool? The biggest tool is don't be afraid to bring people in who are better than you. If all the things grey hair's done to me, Paul, it's made me realise that surround yourself with really good people and therefore through whatever force of nature, you look to be good. <laughs> I think if you coach by websites or coach by booklets, I think you have to leave yourself open to stereotypes and robotics. I just believe that there are so many people who are just good at certain areas. I try to impart their knowledge through them on people. And then I try to get players, and this is through the latest one we've done is the academy for baseballers who are trying to get better and go to college. I say there's never one good way of doing something. And I always use the analogy, Paul, of golf. The hardest one in golf is the putt. And a putt, you know, a club only moves six inches. But the number of techniques a putt moves six inches is astronomical. There are many ways of making a skill in baseball work. The, the trick is to try to find the right way for each individual. And the only way to do that is by bringing people in with all various ways of achieving a skill. Yeah, that's my technique, Paul. Surround yourself with people who've been to Harvard. 
Great answer, Peter. Thank you. I have one last question for you, and it's this. What legacy do you believe you've left and are leaving as a coach? It's funny because there's a player we had called Josh Davies. Josh Davies was a phenomenal player. He played junior baseball through Essendon, played for the National League for the Aces, games record holder, played for Australia, and was paramount to our success at Essendon. And he finished up coaching going to Geelong. And in his first year, he won a premiership in Geelong. They were the side that beat Essendon to break our streak. And I got a message from Josh probably four days after the grand final. And he said, Pete, I finally realise now why you coach. He was sitting back in a pub in Geelong and he coached Geelong to their side one first, seconds and thirds premierships all in the one year. And he's just sat back in a corner by himself and he just looked at the joy that everyone in that club was had got. It wasn't just because of the first, but it was just the joy from the older people to the wives and girlfriends. And he said, now I know why you coach. It's not because of the statistics or the medals or the trophies. It's actually seeing people just happy. It's so simple, but when you can sit back in a room and see so many people of all age groups and all walks of life just embrace... Hi everyone, it's Paul here and you have been listening to the great coach Peter Giles. Some of the key highlights for me were the importance of knowing your role and doing it to the best of your ability, which he summarised in the team mantra of doing one night. Creating an environment where everyone, whether they are an elite player or the first-year player, is respected the same. But athlete self-belief that is fostered by the coaching staff creates a domino effect of improved performance. And as a coach, the players who relate to you the best and are the most successful are the ones who believe you have a vested interest in their well-being. I hope you enjoyed it as much as Jim and I did. And just before we go, if you are one of the people who has listened to our podcast in one of the 60,000 times that has been played, to have any feedback, an element of leadership that you would like us to explore, or know a great coach that you think we should interview, then please let us know. You can contact us using the details in the show notes.